This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cameron Aslan, today we have, um, he is uh, uh, an important part of BFM, and he is the man who knows more about technology than, well, anybody else I know. Uh, he is Matt Armitage. Hey, Cam, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And she is the CEO, or is it the CFO, of Prusaka <laughs> Industries. Prusaka oh, my God. Industries. Um, she is Pauline Fun. Hello, Cam. Hello, Matt. Hi. Hi. Um, later on, you're going to tell us what Prusaka is up in the... In the uh, yes. Are we yeah. going to be post-COVID sure. age? I don't know. But our three topics today are topic number one, tracing your family roots. Is it even worth doing? And what does it mean? Topic number two is uh, the difference between fiction and non-fiction writing. And topic number three is no selfies in sci-fi. So with topic number one, which is my topic, I am uh, researching and writing a piece which is looking at my family history on both sides. I have a, a Welsh side and I have a Malay side, Malay side from Perak. And Pauline, I'm sure you would know, it's really hard to trace family lineages on an Asian side. Yeah. You can go back so far and then it just, just disappears. So yeah. I'm actually fortunate in being able to trace my Malay side to my great-great-grandfather. He was born in 1865. Wow. Uh, but after that, just yeah. who knows? Who knows where? Uh, and he's from a, a notable Perak family. Whereas my British side, because of all the documents that have been written, the census that has been going since 1801, and then church records and the doomsday yeah. book, I could, from my computer, or indeed I could hire somebody, or I could, you know, I could trace them all the way back to wherever. And then the, they are the most anonymous working class Welsh stroke English <laughs> family imaginable. But, but they're documented. They're documented, yeah. yeah. Right. And the, the genealogy industry is an industry. It's, uh, it's, it's a big deal. And the internet is really perfect for it because you can join these genealogy websites and you can put your what you know of your family on it and you can be connected mm. to other people but even as i'm doing it and i'm writing it i'm thinking well i, I didn't know about these people a couple of years ago but i'm wondering well does it make any difference that i do know and i don't know i mean i don't, I don't want to be tied down to my past i don't want to be beholden to these people but i sort of feel yeah, of connected course. so i'm wondering you two do you do you know your family history is like pauline how, how yeah, far back do you know it's, yeah it's interesting you said that because actually i don't know that much about my asian side um, most of my sides are Asian, but I do, my mother has one side of her that is, uh, traces her roots back to the Dutch burger community in Ceylon. And that side of the family is really well documented. Like you said, the church records, because everyone in the Dutch burger community in Ceylon got married in one church. And so that church, I think it's called the Volvedal Church or something, the Valley of Wolves. But this, uh, that church has records back to the first Hazer who arrived in Ceylon and, and even where he was born. And in fact, so he's Dutch burger and his name is Dutch, Hazer, Jan Hazer, but actually he was born in Germany. So I had my great, 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 however many great ancestor, um, was born in Germany in a place called Halberstadt in like 1700 or something like that. And that's how far back I can trace that line. But does it mean anything to you? Does it give you a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling? Or, or, or I mean, uh, not really warm and fuzzy. I mean, it, it's interesting on some level, maybe to imagine their lives and to imagine that you are some in some way connected to those people. I don't feel like a an emotional attachment to them, certainly. 
Um, but I do sometimes like to imagine the kinds of travels that they took, the journey that they undertook, and perhaps why they left Europe to go and settle. It's all in the imagination, I think. And maybe mm. that's what makes it meaningful. Like you're writing a book. Mm. It's probably meaningful in that sense. I don't know mm. if it means anything just because they are your family. Yeah. But, well, 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 Matt, you, you, you have the ability, because you're British, you, you can document these, you can find out. Uh, have you been interested in your family history? It's weird. It's something I have had absolutely no interest in doing whatsoever. Um, <laughs> don't even have that closer relationship with um, cousins and aunts and uncles. So let alone uh, forebears. I mean, I, I know that, for example, my own surname, Armitage, is very common in Yorkshire. It probably comes oh. from the Norman French hermitage. So oh. monks, people who live in a, in a hermitage. Strangely, um, most of my relations on my dad's side seem to have uh, kind of Scottish and Liverpudlian influences. So where the Yorkshire comes into that, who knows? On my mum's side, it's, uh, it's mostly Irish and, uh, and Welsh. So uh, very much a, a kind of mongrel. And I've, I've never really taken the time to, to, to kind of look into it or, or even been that kind of interested, possibly because uh, where I brought up was a, a place that my, my parents had moved to. So we didn't have any family connection to mm. the place we lived in. We didn't have any close relatives around us. So I guess there was that kind of sense of dislocation and it never really occurred to me to trace anything further back than all my cousins living in Liverpool. But we're, we're all probably old enough that we watched uh, back in the 70s on TV, uh, Alex Haley's book, made into a film, Roots, Roots. Mm -hmm. which traced back, he, he's an African-American, and it traced back his family all the way back to, to Africa when uh, his earliest American forebear was brought to America in, I don't know, 1750 or something. That was like a really astonishing moment in TV history because it sort of introduced, I think, to a lot of people, even if they were not African-American, the notion that, that there is this lineage and it kind of meant something. And I'd say, as I'm, as I'm documenting my family, I, I don't feel that kind of roots, kind of, <laughs> that roots connection. I'm a bit like, I'm Matt, perhaps, I feel like I, I'm an island, divorced mm, from mm, history. Mm. But maybe that's also because Cam, perhaps because of the whole context and historical experience of the African-Americans in America, that there was a sense that they were also disconnected and dispossessed of their, of their history in some way. Perhaps that kind of reconnecting with their roots meant something um, beyond just an individual experience. And, and it meant something kind of socially significant as well, in a, sense, in a way that is perhaps it's not so much for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, and, and even, even kind of European Americans mm. Mm. do also have that interest in tracing their relatives back to their home countries. I mean, we, we constantly hear Donald Trump talking about his uh, his German grandfather and his uh, <laughs> mother or grandmother coming yeah. from a little village in yes. in Scotland. So yeah, I think I think that that dislocation is mm. is probably a big part of it. Yeah. Well, I'm. I will. Uh, we're going to move on though. But I'm, I'm going to continue with my my research, and I do find it really well, fascinating. Well, what are you writing, Cam? You're writing it's nonfiction. It's nonfiction. Family memoir of sorts, isn't? Well, I I, I want to uh, personalize history, and, yeah. and so to look the the. Both sides of the family came from mining country, coal mm, mining mm. in Wales and tin mining in uh, Iraq. 
and to, mm -hmm. to, to draw parallels, connections between yeah. two different families who never imagined they could possibly have yeah. any connection. That's really uh, interesting. Wow. Uh, that was so divorced from each other. Um, yeah. So you've, you've actually got the makings of a fantastic steampunk novel there where the two <laughs> branches of the family dig their minds and meet <laughs> somewhere under the Middle East. That's yeah. an idea, Cam. Yeah. No, well, uh, I mean, it's safe to say, though, that my, my, my Malay peroxide never did any digging in any mines. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, would, they watched people do it. Um, so <laughs> we move on, though. We move on to um, perhaps a similar... Uh, yeah, topic. yeah, actually. Pauline, the difference between writing fiction and non-fiction. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've been struggling with this for the past couple of weeks because I'm, I've been starting to write a, a short story. And it's, I haven't written much fiction at all, actually. I've not written any published fiction, for sure. I did start writing um, fragments of fiction of a kind of novella a couple of years back, but um, not quite finished with that. But I'm writing a short story that will be published soon in an anthology. Um, and it's set in Kelantan. And it's so interesting to see how different the process is from writing an essay. And I've written so much about Kelantan in other, in other ways, as articles, kind of just nonfiction, either more journalistic or more essay, essayistic um, forms of writing. And there's some similarities in the process. I still do research. I still do a lot of reading before I actually write. And I still do a lot of, you know, kind of param and process, um, processing of thoughts. But when you actually sit down in front of the blank page and start writing, I just find I love the experience of writing fiction, but it's also daunting in many ways because of the freedom that you have. There's a freedom of form, freedom of style, um, and yet I do feel like I still want to be true to my subject, um, but it's, an, it's a very, very different way um, from, or approach from writing an essay where you, and I find that in an essay, of course, you need to somehow explain things and in fiction you don't and actually i like that about fiction that you have the freedom not to explain things well can, can i talk a mm. couple of basics though can I, it's first yeah, of all yeah. is this a, a contemporary story or is this a, it's contemporary yeah is it are, are the characters speaking in in Cantonese? i mean you would write it um, in english but they would actually be speaking they're not really speaking much at all they're really speaking in their heads <laughs> and so i'm not really and, um, and is, that, is yeah. that a choice on your part because you're too... That's a choice. To, to, no, actually, it's not. Uh, it's because there isn't much interaction in terms of... Uh, well, it's, it's set in the lockdown period. So it's, okay. uh, it's an anthology that's actually collecting stories about the lockdown. And so there's not that much physical interaction or conversational interaction, but mm. a lot of conversation in the characters' heads. And, and even the characters are very minimal. There's maybe there's three characters yeah. actually two main characters and, and a third minor character so matt can i ask you uh first of all one thing that people a lot of people do i i think i've discovered is that when they do struggle with fiction mm. science fiction becomes the avenue mm. huh, that's interesting, there's a lot, yeah. a lot more freedom there in creating the universe that they live mm, in mm, I, don't, I don't know matt mm. do you, you're, you're more the sci-fi mm. man than me uh yes and i have to say that um uh, most of my uh, unfinished fiction projects do tend to be in the realms of uh, either fantasy or, or science fiction. Um, again, I, I, I like that uh, ability to um, play with 
you know, the, with the rules, the rules of gravity, the, the oh. you know, the rules of science, you can, oh, oh. you can actually twist things, twist things around. Um, and also because I, I guess that's the kind of fiction that I like to, to read and, and consume as well. I, I like that escapist element, um, but also that you can uh, still tell sort of um, moral or predictive tales within oh. that that kind of framework without having to to go through the um difficult process of actually researching anything <laughs> yeah yeah which is not no, I mean, no yes. yeah but i mean if i can wade in as a as a award-winning published fiction author uh, <laughs> of the now mostly forgotten book uh, confessions of an old boy uh i've i've written fiction and i've also written non-fiction yeah I, yeah i find i found that i can't it, it's fun reading, uh, sorry, write, well, reading fiction, but writing fiction. <laughs> oh. But it's damn difficult because you got an, I found, I really oh. had to feel that I could own all the characters and I yeah. really understood their entire universe. Yeah, right. And, mm -hmm. and so like I stumbled on this character, this Malaysian character that I, I felt I understood, but I couldn't, I mean, God, I mean, I couldn't get in the head of a Clantonese fisherman or something. I mean, much as I would love to read about that and I sort of like, I'd love to write that, but. But I, yeah, I can only write about that because I've spent so much time working with them. Yeah. You know, I, I also, I don't think I could write, I don't think I could write something in the realm of fantasy because I like playing with rules too, but I like playing with the rules of language. And so for me, and for me, the writing fiction actually gives you the freedom to do that, where you're not bound to explain or necessarily be factual or necessarily, um, you don't really have to, to have had those experiences of your characters, although it's nice of you if you can um, internalize and convey that somehow. But I do love the fact that um, the freedom of language to me is wonderful. That's the kind of, mm. I think the kind of, Fiction I also like to read. It's not necessarily plot driven, and I think I'm my stories are not plot driven really. Um, mm. More kind of evoking a mood or a, a kind of image or a, a situation. Yeah, we'll see. It's not finished yet. I'm still <laughs> yes. working yeah, at the last like, section. <laughs> it's a, it sounds fantastic, uh, Matt, <laughs> Matt. You've got so you've got several drawers filled with unfinished. Mm. Uh, what, oh, yeah. what, what's what <laughs> stopped them becoming finished? largely uh, the, the fact that I, I just don't get time to do it. I mean, I, it takes me um, a day, a day and a half a week to prepare the show that I do for BFM every week. Uh, I have consulting work. Um, in the evening, I tend to just be tired. So I, I just find it's one of those things that I don't, I don't get around to. Um, I so there's no creative just, block. There's no... No, there's no creative block at all. When I do find time and I sit down and do it, I, I get ahead with it quite quickly. But then I find I don't get another opportunity to come back mm, to it for, for another three or four months. Oh so, God. yeah, there's no, there's no creative block. And I'm still, I'm still kind of playing the thing in my head frequently. Um, yeah. I, you know, I was chastising myself for not sitting down and doing any of it uh, this weekend. But then mm. I started writing um, some articles that I'm going to put on my website that hopefully are going to bring me some more business. So, you know, there's, there's so many other things to, to do. And, and I revamped my 
my company's website this weekend as well. So it's, it's not that I was doing. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But that's that's what I mean. I want to, I want to get to that point where I have a little bit of um, like free financial space to actually sit there and and do it. Yeah. Yeah, But if you are, if you find, if you become the Isaac Asimov of Putrajaya, then, you know, the business is just going to come rolling in. It is, but um, you know, I'll be I'll be out on the street meeting with the squirrels long before the uh, the publisher actually picks it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, Pauline, uh, can I ask one final question? Yes, of course. When, when you're writing, this is something that really mm. bedevils me. Um, do you think about your audience? Who are you writing for? Not as no, hard, not much. A little bit, of course, um, but I try not to too much. Mm. I do, of course, when it does come to, because it is something like Kelantan and quite specifically a kind of community in Kelantan that practices my putri and some of those things, I do sometimes feel like, okay, maybe I need to clarify a little bit what this is. If I'm using a kind of term or, or object yeah. um, that is very specific to that culture, then I do think, okay, it's an English language, uh, even if I'm using a Malay word. Maybe I need to explain it a little bit or just give a hint of what it is or kind of give a feeling of uh, what it might be. So a little bit, yes. But I try not to think too much about the audience. Yeah. There's a glossary. Uh, you can always have a glossary. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think that's a, a good point, though, because when, mm. I'm, when I'm writing an article for a, for a website or a magazine mm. or somebody who's commissioned it, I am writing to a specific yes. audience. So, the, so, so it is structured according mm. to that audience. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons I don't get back to the fiction because the fiction is just for me. Mm. So it feels like much more of an indulgence. So it's at the, the end of that chain rather than being sort of higher up that mm. list of priorities. Yeah, and I'm somewhere stuck that's in the true. middle in the worst mm. possible spot where I'm sort of like overly thinking about the audience. And uh, Do you think about the audience a lot when you write to, fiction? To, I, yeah, I've, I, yeah, I've made that mistake in the past. And, and when I say made that mistake in the past, by the time I've realized it, I've, I've finished an entire novel. And it's, like, you know, it's like, oh, oh, there's a problem here. I, you know, if I could just rewind the clock five years, then I'll be able to solve it. I mean, really idealistically, I would like my audience to be my favorite dead authors, you know, and like to have them read it, like to have Danilo Kish read a story and actually say, oh, this is really not bad in my yeah. mind, you know, yeah. that's my audience. But yeah, yeah. Or, or even worse, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> This is really terrible. <laughs> but the point no. is not to have him say that, Ken. No, 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 sure, sure. I've had that, though. Um, okay, so we're going to move on. Uh, and good luck with that, Pauline. Uh, look forward thank to Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah you, should, you, should, you should have a read. I will send it to you. In Fantastic. And, uh, but in a moment, though, we're going we're gonna to go to the final frontier, where no man has taken a selfie before, here <laughs> on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Pauline Fun, and now Matt Armitage is going to take us into the realms of sci-fi and ask the question, why are there no selfies? Well, yeah, um, I had this kind of realization this weekend because I finally got around to watching the, the new Star Wars uh, show, The Mandalorian. Uh, and I was looking at, you know, the, Obviously, they've got all the usual Star Wars technology. They can jump around at, uh, at light speed. They've got laser weapons and things that can blow up planets. Uh, they've got, you know, all of this incredibly weird food. They've got 
these species living alongside each other. And, you know, you're, you're kind of watching all of these advanced civilizations on screen, but one thing they don't do with all this technology is stop and take photographs, especially not to stop and take photographs of themselves. You don't see, you know, Luke Skywalker suddenly putting his arm around Darth Vader and mugging for the, for the camera with both of them with the lightsabers out. That would actually be the kind of behavior that we would expect from people now, because, you know, the, the, with the technology we have now, that's oh. what you do. You go out, you see somebody famous, you put your arm around them. Do you mind if I have a quick photo? And there are even kind of running jokes inside a lot of these shows. Um, for example, in the, the kind of Star Trek world, you have uh, the Tribbles, those um, uh, little furry balls that uh, can replicate madly so those those pop up across the kind of uh, star trek universe but again nobody thinks to actually stop and pose with a room full of tribbles and the same with the same with uh, star wars as well you're getting these jokes in a lot of star wars movies about wookies uh, uh, so if there it's so if backer isn't in a movie you will set characters saying oh is the wookie here but when you see a Wookiee, the Wookiee, the closest that we've ever come is when uh, I think the Ewoks at the, the end of Return of the Jedi or whatever, and they turn some of the Stormtroopers' armor into steel drums. That's the, the kind of most self-referential. It, it's kind of been in, in that sense. And I started to, to look at other sci-fi, especially um, uh, works as well, you know, whether it's Asimov, whether it's Philip K. Dick, and a lot of the things that they predict in those uh, in those books and and that have been turned into films as well, of course, have come to pass. I mean, we're seeing, for example, the the Handmaid's Tale, some of the the aspects of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid Tale, sort of coming to pass in the U.S. We're seeing the kind of rise of the the religious right over there, but none of these authors and thinkers ever imagined the level of narcissism that would put all this fantastic technology in our hands and just have mm. us take photographs of ourselves or our food or our friends. Ah, uh, no, there is one. There is one. I think you make is excellent it? point, Matt. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It. I never it's thought true. of it. But now that you can't mention it, in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick version of Arthur C. Clarke's book, when they're standing next to the monolith, this mysterious monolith, these uh, in their spacesuits, they do pose for a photograph uh, with themselves and the monolith, and then the monolith comes to life. Oh, absolutely! But, but you're right; that's like the mm, only one yeah. I can think of. Mm. Well, no, I mean there are there are others. I mean, if you look at um, Philip K. Dick's work, very often when people land on Mars or whatever, they will take a photograph to mm. memorialize that occasion. But it's just that one-off. It's very mm, much mm. in that kind of 1950s or 60s sense of taking a single photo just to memorialize mm. that, that mm. thing. Um, so when we see this kind of selfie culture coming in, it's more in the kind of modern contemporary science fiction like Black Mirror. But that actually puts the focus on the behavior. So that's not actually mirroring the, the actual behavior in society either, because that's mm -mm. amplifying it to the, the 
nth degree. Mm -hmm. And also one of the things that I find sort of really interesting about it is a lot of dystopian science fiction, you know, they have these elaborate surveillance mechanisms they have you know Darth Vader can track people mentally across the <laughs> universe but more normally we have kind of microphones and cameras but really the simplest way to do that is just to have everyone's mobile phone camera and microphone switched on all of the time and the monitoring yeah. to be done doing that you don't need to create oh, this true. elaborate surveillance system and culture because wow. it's already baked into our existing behavior yeah so pauline uh, you're not uh, i know you're not a big science fiction fan but uh, i think what matt's saying is, is, is for me quite revelatory but I mean, yeah, it have, is. You, have you noticed okay. anything like this yeah you're absolutely right i don't really watch much science fiction at all but yeah absolutely i think you're, you're absolutely right do you find it strange why don't that mobiles haven't become this or the it's either just the horror of it like an in a, as in a black mirror sense, or it's something that is, is just kind of not. Well, I, I think that the text messaging aspect of the mobile has been introduced yeah. into mm. fiction. Mm. Uh, we do it's see, fiction, yeah. we do see a copy on the screen, mm-hmm. which, which would be a problem though, if you then sell your TV show to a non-English speaking market, mm. uh, because they'll then have to take that copy off and, and put something else on. Are there any movies that just kind of also um, play with that whole device thing, like film something through a phone and just do it that way, like experimental, experimentally? Yeah, Is I it, mean, you, you, you get that a lot more on um, kind of Netflix, mm. um, but they're, they're, they're much more kind of youth shows. But that, mm. that kind of comes back to another area, which is, is it to do with the age of the content makers? Right. Is it because... Uh, most of the people currently writing TV shows, writing mm, movies, mm. Uh, writing books, are because they're in that Gen X age group, where this kind of behavior isn't, you know, sort of deeply ingrained in the, no, in, in the psyche. Is that uh, the reason that it hasn't come out? I mean, one of the only examples I can think of recently that really played with it in kind of a blockbuster sense was mm. the... Um, uh, the the last kind of big Marvel movie where they had uh, uh, the Hulk mugging for selfies with uh, oh, really? people <laughs> because because they uh. don't have much to to do anymore. Um, well, so, I, I I wonder. You know, I mean, I see, I see what you're saying with the age of the filmmakers, but also mm. we're constantly uh, uh, in the middle of technology phases, and it's constantly becoming redundant. So, I mean, maybe the selfie thing is, is there'll be another, yes, you're absolutely right. Narcissism is forever and we will want to document, but that, that you know, in a few years time, who knows how we will take these images. Mm. Um, maybe these images, we don't even have to take these images. These images are being taken for us and we can just, you know. Yeah. Know. So the world will be like a, a zoom screen and you can just oh grab a quick. And you make a TV or a film in 2020 and then the audience by 2023 are going to be mm. like, oh, God, that's just so mm-hmm. embarrassing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, <laughs> Matt, Matt Armitage's <laughs> new oh, so-called classic is just like behind the <laughs> well, I, uh, I can't remember the, um, the name of the play now, um, but it's, it's a play that revolves around the fact that there's just one phone in a house. Uh, and so I think it was very popular in kind of the, the post-Second World War mm. years. But the last time it was staged, the director actually decided not to put it on because audiences today 
could not understand or relate to the fact that there was just one phone in a living room. Really? No other wow. way for people to communicate in the rest of the house and that it was oh. wired and that it, it couldn't move around. So the whole premise of the play just kind oh. of fell apart when it came to contemporary audiences. Oh, I, I wonder how it just kind of reminded me of a, an image on, of a poem that I read that was written by actually a nurse in Wuhan, one of the nurses that was working in the, in the whole COVID crisis, uh, the, the heart of the COVID uh, pandemic. But the, and it was a really moving poem. It was translated into English, of course. Um, I don't read Chinese, but, but the last, and she was describing the kind of gathering the things of a patient who had died. And, and the last she ended with the, that she had to collect and return his handphone to the family. And that was like, and she was wondering who, who was texting and who was calling. And, and that image, I think, was really powerful because it is something, certainly for a contemporary audience, but I do think even in the future, maybe 50 years from now, when, they, when the technology is still perhaps is obsolete, maybe, I think it would still evoke yeah. something. Well, I mean, that, obviously, that reminds me of, you know, the, that, that classic sort of Holocaust image of mm. a pile of yeah. shoes. No, exactly, or the toys, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now you mention it, I mean, there would be nothing more horrifying than just a pile of handphones. Yeah, You know, exactly. for, for that to yeah. happen, something yeah. terrible must have happened. Mm. And and even worse, every now and again, just one of the screens starts to starts well, ringing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. a text goes off, and right. no you one just, to answer it. Well, right. we've just we've just inspired Matt Amateur's next. There we go. That's your next. Science <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Mining under the ground, a heap of cell phones. <laughs> got it. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, I'm going to move on though. But um, I, you're absolutely right. And, and the Mandalorian. I watched the first episode, and I liked it, but in a similar vein, the man never takes his helmet off. And I just couldn't watch it after that. It's like, inside his helmet must be disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think, I think one of the interesting things is, I don't think I would have sat down and watched it end to end when it first came out last kind of November. I think I would have found the helmet off-putting. But now, with the last six months of everyone wearing masks, <laughs> right. it, didn't, it, it didn't strike me as being weird at all. It's like, okay, he just doesn't want to take his helmet off. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so uh, we're going to move on. But uh, listeners, you're encouraged to uh, send your science fiction um, nominations for things for Pauline to watch or read. Well, yes. so what, yes, what are the yes, classics? Out there? 2001, though, Pauline, you watched 2001. Oh, yes, yes, that I have. Okay. Yes, that I have. Um, Long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we move on, though, now to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something we think might be of interest, and I go first. I'm going to recommend something I've kind of recommended already in the past, but um, I... During the lockdown, the real MCO, I was reading a lot of Charles Dickens, and mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. And uh, and it was just the books that I happened to have in in my apartment. And there was one that I really wanted to read, which was Nicholas Nickleby. And oh. I didn't I didn't have it. And I went to the bookshop. They, amazingly, they didn't have it. And I was like, oh. so I was scratching the cat the other day, and I looked up at my bookshelf, <laughs> and and lo and behold. There it was, Nicholas Nicholson, oh. I already had it. Oh. So I started reading it, and I thought I knew the story, but it's, it's, it's really the probably most tragic, horrifying, sad thing I've ever read. 
Really? Um, wow. Because it, it's set in this uh, school up in the middle of Yorkshire, Armitage country. And um, it's just a dumping ground for unwanted children. Oh, my God. And actually, these schools uh, were notorious because so many of the children would die. And that wow. was the plan. If you sent your child there, you basically, it was a, it was an extermination camp. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> it was, and it's, and Dickens is a funny guy and everything, but at the same time, when he, when he turns it around and he's writing mm. about how there are these kids who are basically in a concentration camp, it's oh. just horrifying. Oh my goodness. Uh, so it's like a comic novel, but he doesn't shy away from the horror of it. Are you I, still I reading it? Yeah, and I, mm. I didn't know that there was going to be this horror when I read it. When I, I've not read that one. Yeah. Mm. So I guess my recommendation is one, Charles Dickens, two, Nicholas Nickleby. Um, it's wow. good. Uh, so, uh, Pauline, what's yours? I'm going to recommend a project that we're working on. I mentioned it uh, to you, Ken, earlier. Um, which is a project that Pusaka is actually working in collaboration with Allianz, the, the insurance uh, company. It's kind of a public education initiative on the subject of history and, uh, and also memory, collective memory. Um, and it's called Project Bina Bangsa. It's not a kind of official history project, um, but we're looking at 10 foundational moments um, in the making of Malaysia or the formation of Malaysia and, and what it means. And so, I mean, there's a few various aspects to the project and we, we're hoping to get as many people interested and, and involved in, in some way or another. But um, the foundation of it is 10 small books that will be coming out on various topics like the Rukunagara and like the, the making of the Malayan constitution, um, like the, also even the National Language Act and things like that, all the way up to Wawasan 2020. Um, but written in a way that is engaging, that is um, interesting for the public and not the kind of textbook history style. And also we're hoping to um, ignite various discussions on the subject of not only history, but also memory um, and, and what it means in contemporary times for, for Malaysians. Um, one of those things, the Rukunagara is of course a big subject this, this uh, year because it's the 50th anniversary of the Rukunagara. And it's been interesting. There's been many interesting conversations on that. Um, so I recommend for people to go and check out this new project. We have a website. It's called sure. projectbinabangsa.com. Um, and it's just starting to be developed, but I think there will be a lot of interesting material coming out there. Writings, photographs, all kinds of maybe audio podcasts and things like that that will be coming out in the next few months. So it's going to be a, a book book as well, though? Or ten, is it, is it... ten small books. Right. But it's yes. mostly going to be uh, combined on the net then, the, 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 the real um, experiences on the net. Yeah, a lot of it's on the net, um, but the books also are really important. So everything kind of comes together. So there are 10 books on various subjects. Um, the online experience is um, a little bit more expansive in that it's not just about those various uh, topics, but it's also, we'll also invite people even to write in and to write things, not in an official history way, but really things about their own families, oral histories, you know, things they remember about, um, even just questions that they have, send in old photographs, things like that. So we'd cool. like to make it as collective as uh, possible. All right. So yes, uh, a bit uh, the 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 a bit of culture audience. Um, mm. will, yes, will come together. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. please. Abok combine, and we <laughs> shall uh, go check out the website again. The name of it? Project uh, Bina Bangsa. Cool. That sounds really yes. good. Uh, is yeah. there a, is yeah. there a timetable on this? Is it uh, supposed? To... Um, well, the first book will be launched towards Madeka. 
And so within the, the period of kind of Medeca and uh, Malaysia Day, we'll be launching a couple of books and then um, all the rest by the end of the year. That's like really soon. Yeah, it's soon. It's very soon. <laughs> it's not wow. open. Okay, cool. All yeah. right. Um, excellent. Uh, go check it out. And so uh, finally, Matt, what recommendation do you have? I am going to recommend that uh, everyone checks out the work of uh, Tony Allen, uh, a Nigerian drummer who passed oh. away in April this mm -hmm. year, um, probably to, to do with coronavirus uh, oh. complications. Now, he's been one of the, the most kind of seminal drummers of the, the, the last 50 years. He was uh, Fela Kuti's uh, musical director in yeah. Africa 70. So he's, he pretty much pioneered the kind of Afrobeat and Afrofunk sounds. Yeah. He moved to, uh, to, to London and then to uh, Paris uh, sort of from the 80s onwards. And he's always been there in the background. He's, uh, you know, he whether you're listening to, to uh, dub reggae, hip hop, disco, um, all sorts of dance music and, and electronica, even jazz, which he's uh, gotten more into or was getting more into over the, the kind of last uh, last few years. I think one of the, the last things uh, he released was a, a jazz collaboration with Hugh Masekela, the uh, mm. South African uh, trumpeter yes trumpeter or trombonist yeah trumpeter uh so fantastic fantastic work um whatever kind of music you're into tony allen has played something uh for you so uh he's worked a lot with um damon Albarn of the the band blur so he had a, mm. a couple of bands with him rocket juice and the moon the good the bad and the queen He's worked with gorillas. He's worked with techno artists like Jeff Mills and Jimmy Tenor. You know, he has never stopped kind of uh, experimenting. If you're not familiar with his work, there's a fantastic tribute mix on the Giles Peterson Worldwide FM website, which you can uh, which you can go and check out just to get an overview. But it is fantastic. Everything from, like I said, um, Afrobeat, Afrofunk, through to um, uh, his his tribute to to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, fantastic work, and I don't think we'll see another drummer like that again. What's his name again, Matt? I I, uh, Tony I, Allen. See, I, um, I can. I, I know. I'm sorry. And and Paul, Pauline, you've been nodding along knowingly. You well, you know, I know of course Hugh Masekela and Fela Kuti and people, but I I don't know specifically Tony Allen. But I must have listened to him because yeah. Alongside his, his all those is, other musicians. Yeah, yeah, his is the sound that kind of propels yeah. it. So his his drum sound is is very unusual. It's very soft. Uh, mm. There's a lot of kind of offbeat fills. Um, a lot of his uh, kick drums and bass drums are, are, are double beats. So he mm. throws you off without ever throwing the the rhythm and the tempo off. So he's a very inventive nice. and expressive drummer. So that that Felakuti sound yeah. is largely Tony Allen sound. Yeah, yeah wonderful. All right, well, that's a, a new thing I'm adding to my, my uh, world of knowledge that I'm going to just drop on people. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, Tony Allen, don't you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for that, Matt. Sad that he passed away, though. It's very sad. But with that, we come to the end of this week's uh, show. And only remains for me to thank special honoured guest, Pauline Fan. Thank you, Ken. Matt Armitage. Thank you very much. And, uh, and myself, Cam Raslan. And please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.